Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. The realities of climate change can seem overwhelming. Can changing our mindset help us cope? This is Climate One. Climate One conversations with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, are recorded before a live audience and hosted by Greg Dalton. After a three-year term as Executive Secretary to the United Nations Framework on Climate Change, Christiana Figueres was exhausted, emotionally drained, and ready to pack it in. What kept her going? Out of nowhere, I have no idea where, the word Buddhism came into my mind. So I'm like, Buddhism? Buddhism? What do you know about Buddhism? I said, nothing. I don't even know how it's spelled, (laughs) but I need it. Figueres credits Buddhist teachings both for helping her through a personal crisis and for providing a source of inner strength that sustained her through negotiations at the Paris Climate Summit. Later in the program, Greg further explores the role of mindfulness in climate action with Meg Levy of the San Francisco Zen Center and Joshua Friedman of Six Seconds, the Emotional Intelligence Network. Friedman believes that rather than letting our emotions make us feel helpless, we can harness them as a hidden source of power. This ability to grow compassion is one of the most powerful things we can do as human beings. And it transforms us, it transforms our relationships, And ultimately, it does transform the world. First, here's Greg's conversation with Christiana Figueres. I I vividly remember your predecessor, um, Ivo de Boer, who was, you know, led the United Nations Climate Summit uh, negotiations in your position. And he was pretty fried and grizzled at the end of, it seemed like, you know, been a long haul for him. You came in and, and took over that position. And then you have been open somewhat about you hit bottom, holding literally the weight of the world on your shoulders in this position. Tell us about that experience when you hit bottom and kind of found Buddhism as a way out. Yeah, I guess there were two different moments. One was um, just walking into that responsibility. Um, and and I do remember um, the first press conference that I had when, you know, we were all still riling from the pain of um of Copenhagen and I was asked by a um a journalist and I had not done my press training so my 
press team was sitting there, you know, going like, oh, my God, what is she going to say? Because the question was, so, Miss Figueres, and when do you think we're ever, you know, do you think we're ever going to be able to reach a global agreement? And the first thing that came out of my mouth was, not in my lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> really helpful, right? <laughs> so my press team is like frozen over there. <laughs> Let's get her some press training. Um, but, but again, it was a fantastic teachable moment for me, right? Because I had actually never thought about that question. I had never thought about the consequences of not having a global agreement. And the moment that it came out of my mouth, I kind of looked at myself, you know, when you have a distance, I'm going, hold it. Who is that person who just said that? Because that is so irresponsible and it is so unacceptable. And that's the moment when I said, right, my commitment here is to change that. Because I think I had voiced the global mood on climate change. Mm. And I, I realized my commitment and my task here is to change that global mood. And, of course, I can't change the global mood before I change myself. Because, as we know, all change starts with self. So that started off a journey. And then, it, But it, a few years into the job, you hit, you were having a difficult personal time. Also, yeah, I mean, everything comes together, right? It's a mm. wonderful package that life gives you. Um, yeah, I, I shared this moment at Grace Cathedral where um, the United Nations terms, at least for the convention, for the climate convention, are three-year um, terms. And at the end of my first term, I was asked by the Secretary General, will you do a second one? And I was like... Can I think about that? Um, because I was having a traumatic situation in my uh, in my personal life. Um, I was exhausted from working 27 hours a day, eight days a week. Um, and I just thought, you know, I, this process really needs someone who can come with just incredible strength and um, and renewed vigor. Um, and I was seriously thinking of saying, thank you, but, you know, let's find someone else. And... Um, as life would have it, my brother and sister, who have lived in Costa Rica their whole life, um, expressed their interest in celebrating my sister's 50th birthday, that was August of that year, by coming to Europe to see a glacier for the first time in their life. And I thought, wow, that, I, that's such a beautiful, right? So I said, my treat, you come up, I will organize the whole thing. So they came over. And we went up in the gondola uh, in Austria. We went up in the gondola. And I remember coming to the point in the gondola where you begin to see the top of the mountain. And I just totally lost my breath because there was nothing white. There was no ice. It was a completely brown, bare top of the mountain. Um, so, you know, a completely iceless glacier is not what you expect. And the impact was so deep on me that I remember stepping out of the gondola with my brother and sister and just falling to my knees right there and saying, right, this is a lesson learned. It doesn't matter if I'm exhausted. It doesn't matter, you know, if I'm in full pain. I just got to do it. So I... After we got down, I called the ESG, the Secretary General, and I said, sir, three more years of service. Here we go. 
Um, and sometimes you just really need those knocks, right? You just really need those knocks to understand that um, we're, we're, we're not here to just embark on the easy stuff. I mean, honestly, right? How, 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 how boring would it be if you're just here for the easy stuff? We're here to engage with the difficult challenges that are given to us and to be able to embrace them with courage, with love, with happiness, um, with determination and with a vision and know that, you know, this is something that needs to be changed and it is going to be changed. How exactly? We never know at the beginning, but you've got to say this situation is unacceptable. It is morally unacceptable. It is financially stupid. It is environmentally terrifying. It is humanly unacceptable. And we're going to change this. And honestly, in that moment, you know, I didn't know exactly how we were going to do it, but you just, you just have to set the goal and then go at it and go at it with extreme and deep love for, uh, for this planet, for all human beings on this planet who all deserve, particularly those who are not here yet, they all deserve the, um, and have the right to, um, to a life with dignity and a life with happiness um, and with well-being. And if we do not address climate change in a timely fashion, that's not going to happen. So mm. there we are. Thank you for, for sharing that. Um, and there came a, a point where tissues are in order. Yeah, tish, yes, not you. Yes, there you go. Not you. A, we don't um, normally have them, but thank you for for sharing that. And there was a time where where you found Buddhism, or if you say it literally, fell in your lap. Yeah. At a time where you were not sure you could personally go on, you were thinking some really scary thoughts. Yeah, I guess Buddhism did find me because. Um, I was in yet another crisis, um, and um, I was very seriously considering, you know, well, hmm, do I stay here, or should I actually move to the next life, because I'm not quite sure uh, whether I can endure this, and um, and so I wrote to, uh, do we have time for this story? This is a good story. I think this is okay. what people came for here, how you found Ty. You know. <laughs> how I found Ty. Um, so I was in that, you know, just absolute horrible crisis, tr truly wondering, you know, should I, should I stay here or should I move on, help myself to move on? And, um, and I wrote to a friend in Costa Rica, I wrote him an email, and I said, uh, I'm having a really hard time. I'm having serious suicidal thoughts. Um, and I just need to do something. So he writes back and he goes, well, so what do you want to do? And out of nowhere, I have no idea where the word Buddhism came into my mind. So I'm like, Buddhism. And he goes, Buddhism? What do you know about Buddhism? I said, nothing. I don't even know how it's spelled, but I need it. And he goes, okay, let me see if I can find something. And, um, so he sent me a link, and it was Thai's Monastery in Germany. And it was 45 minutes from my house. And I said, I could do that. And so then I went, you know, engaging with these people uh, who had no idea what was going on. But, you know, can I come? And I know that it's full and da-da-da-da. And they said, well, first of all, are you a man or are you a woman? I said, well, I'm a woman because you know, they separate you, right? Um, and they said, okay, that's good. We have one room left 
if you're a woman, um, but it's on the fourth floor and there's no elevator. Can you do that? And I said, you know what? I will walk up 20 floors. Just give me a place to come. And Ty's teaching saved my life. They really did. They saved my life. Um, And honestly, they are um, also the guidance that I used, but that I saw emerging very quickly in how we brought everyone together under the Paris Agreement. Did you share this quiet source of calmness and energy with other people, or did you, even from Buddhist countries or Asian nations, or did you keep it to yourself? No, I kept it to myself because... Um, because we were working in a very intercultural, interfaith, international um, space, and I did not want the fact that something that had touched me so deeply and had been so meaningful to me to be interpreted as uh, an imposition on anyone else. I mean, this was good for me, but um, everyone who was there was being helped by something else. So it was it was certainly my guidance and the light in in my life, but it didn't have to be everybody else's. Um, But what it did help me was to maintain an inordinate amount of calm in moments of total crisis in the negotiations. But also, if if I can tell one more story, because I think it illustrates how these teachings that, I mean, to me, they came through time, but Frankly, I believe they are golden teachings that are at the root of every single spiritual practice, every single one. It just happens that the vehicle to me was through this, but they are golden principles. And one of the ones that I saw unpacking the difficulty in the negotiations was the understanding of the dynamic between being a victim and being a perpetrator. And through the study of Thai's teachings, I began to see myself as having um, experienced myself as a victim for many, many years, Uh, as a victim of a very difficult childhood, as a victim uh, in my marriage, uh, as a victim, you know, and of course, everybody who sees me up there goes like, Christiana, a victim? Oh, Oh, yes, because we all have this, right? We all do ourselves as victims in some way. And I realized, wow, okay, so if I see myself as a victim, what that actually means, independently of the reality or whatever, which is frankly unreality, but what that means is that if I am labeling myself as a victim, I am immediately labeling somebody else as a perpetrator. And whoa, was that an awakening, right? Uh, and I went, no, that's, that is just, I, I can't do that. I cannot label somebody else as a perpetrator. And then if you think about it one step farther, that person, can I use you as an example? If I say, right, I'm a victim and Greg is my perpetrator, right? What you're going to do with that is you're not going to sit on that. You're going to immediately turn it around and say, no, 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 no. I'm not a perpetrator. I have actually done this because I am a victim of something prior, Right. Because so you hurt me today. Well, but the reason that I hurt you is because you hurt me the day before yesterday. And I know I did that because, you know, I'm pretty soon you are 300 years back. Right. And and you you engage in this seesaw 
of victim perpetrator and everybody is a victim and a perpetrator if you engage in that di- in dynamic you are a victim and your perpetrator at different points in time with different people with different situations and you're into this your whole life and and i saw that happening in the negotiations i saw it happening with developing country developing countries whose representatives were absolutely convinced that they are victims. They are objectively victims of climate change. But they don't have to stay there. We can get out of the victim-perpetrator dynamic. And as I began to bring myself out of my dynamic of victim and perpetrator, I began to see the negotiation shift. And I began to see people, you know, not looking back and blaming, but rather honoring the reality, um, because there's huge responsibility of developed countries, and at the same time, begin to look forward and say, we have a common responsibility. Yes, there's historic responsibility in the back, but there is a forward-looking common responsibility that has to do with the future of the planet and the future of all human beings on the planet. And it was so remarkable to me, right, to say, wow, you know, and I'm honestly still working on that, but to see that emerge in the bigger system was just so humbling to me, right? Now, I'm not going to say that it was a causal relationship, but it definitely was not unconnected. There definitely was an emergence of a different way of looking at our relationship with each other. Can you summon love for the Koch brothers? (laughs) You know... Here is, here is the difficulty. We cannot be exceptionalist about it, okay? We cannot. Um, and while, while what they do makes me very angry, it does not dissipate my spiritual love for them because they are also on this planet. And my challenge is to spread... And my arc of love over those that are close to me, that I love, that, you know, are in my sphere, but also to spread that arc of love over those that we don't agree with, over people that we have never met, over people that, you know, maybe they are, we think are inconsequential to our lives. They're not. We're all interconnected. And, you know, even the Koch brothers, with whom I've had fascinating conversations, um, (laughs) There is something good even in them. There is something good even in oil companies, even in coal companies. You know, the moment that you engage in the blaming game and demonizing a person, a company, a sector, you've lost it. You have lost your game. The moment you start doing that, you come down into a different level from which it's going to be very difficult to emerge because someone is going to have to win and someone is going to lose. And... That's not the space that I want to work in. I want to work in the space in which we all win. I want to ask you, you are head of Mission 2020, which the tagline is the need for speed. There's a lot of urgency in climate people. We have to do more faster. So my question is, how can be sure that you're being mindful and going fast? Is it possible to go slower and smarter? Because I feel so much anxiety driving action. Any kind of action is good in climate. I'm not sure people are thinking about the right action in a mindful, intentional way. 
Yeah, I guess in many traditions, in, in the Thai tradition as well, you are taught mindfulness by slowing down. Uh, and I think that that's very helpful because um, because it takes you into a completely different space from, from where we are normally during the day. And, however, um, you can definitely be mindful in speed. And given the physical reality of climate change, there's no way that we can slow down. So for me, mindfulness is much more about intentionality than it is about speed. It is much more about um, being grounded and seeing where everything comes from than, um, than about stopping action. It's about truly understanding that there is a beautiful alignment that goes all the way through us um, and back down and, and that that alignment, to put it into you know the outside world, that that is the alignment that we have to see of climate action among you know individuals, uh, communities, cities, states, governments. That alignment is the parallel alignment that we need to see and express and live by in our own personal lives. If we're not aligned, we can't expect anybody else to be aligned. So mindfulness for me is not about necessarily slowing down when I can't. If I can, then I definitely do it. But it's not about slowing down. It's about the crystallization of the intention. And it's about knowing where the energy, the spirit, the wisdom comes from. It doesn't come from us, right? It doesn't come from it. From it, it there is a much greater power here that is helping us out Thank heavens. Sorry about the pun. Last question is, um, there's something called the hope police, which is people think that climate people need to be hopeful because uh, darkness paralyzes people. Do you ever find or sense fake optimism? People who kind of think that I should be optimistic more than I really am because that's what will be effective. I see a lot of that in climate people saying, I'm really not going to say how dark it is because I think I should tell people it's brighter because that w will be easier to receive than the dark truth. Don't you think you can see through that? Fake optimism? Yeah. Yeah. So what's the point? I think it's widely practiced. Well, but 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 that's not the you know that's not what we pursue. We don't we don't pursue widely practiced anything. We pursue. Um, attitudes and actions that have an impact, which is different than popularity. Um, and, and yeah, I, th I think, you know, that, that alignment inside um, and the clarity of the reason why you're optimistic. We, we, in climate in particular, you can't be optimistic irresponsibly, saying, oh, well, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be okay. No, you have to have optimism in the sense that we know that we have to engage in this challenge from a positive starting point. If you start going into your work on climate saying, well, actually, you know, it's all doom and gloom and it's not going to go anywhere. Well, guess what? It won't go anywhere. So you have to, going back to what I, you know, was sharing before, you have to have your vision very clearly in front of you. You have to know that we don't have another option, but to straighten this out and then keep on that path. So that is, I would call it, you know, an, a grounded optimism. It's not 
irresponsible optimism. It is the fact that optimism is not the result of having achieved something, but rather the input with which you enter into a challenge. That's the difference. You enter into this challenge. You enter into this engagement with optimism because you know that we have to do this. In that sense, it's almost like, I was going to say an obligation, but it's, it's a... It's a sacred opportunity that all of us are having right now to be alive and um, and to be adults in the moment in which history and mankind are actually just in such incredible transformation. And that is the optimism, I think, that is helpful to make a shift. So it's not about fake optimism. It's about understanding that that's the starting point um, from which we engage with anything that is challenging. This is a Climate One conversation about using mindfulness in climate action. Greg has been speaking with Christiana Figueres of Mission 2020. Figueres served two terms as Executive Secretary of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change and helped to broker the historic 2015 Paris Climate Accord. Greg is now joined by Meg Levy and Josh Friedman. Levy is an ordained Zen priest with the San Francisco Zen Center and a senior teacher with the emotional intelligence program Search Inside Yourself. Friedman is the CEO of Six Seconds, the emotional intelligence network. Here's their conversation. Meg, let's begin with reflections on what you heard Christiana say. You were sitting listening to her. What really is coming forward for you listening to that story? I appreciate so much what she shared, but also towards the end when she was talking about um, the vision, uh, how we approach these issues, uh, what I've been thinking about recently, you know, having taught mindfulness in a secular version in companies, et cetera, for the last 10 years or so, that um, seeing how it's evolving, and there's something called the fourth foundation of mindfulness, which isn't talked about very much, which there are many things involved in that, but one is what is the vision? What is the framing in which you you look at the world? And I think it's very important. Buddhism actually, in some ways, is quite radical, and that it asks us to look very deeply at impermanence, at change, and also at interconnectedness. And what happens if we really take that on as how we see the world? And the part of the mindfulness piece is remembering that, not just, oh, I'm doing my mindfulness practice, but as you go through the world, are you seeing that? Are you knowing that? Are you realizing that it's not just me and my separate self that has to be protected or my in-group, but we are actually deeply, vastly interconnected? That connectedness. Josh Friedman, your, your reflections on what Christiana presented to us today. First, I could just listen to her all day. Yeah. Her passion and, and insight and uh, presence was, mm. uh, it's just remarkable. Um, I just want to continue with the theme of optimism mm-hmm. and that the notion that optimism doesn't mean denying reality. Optimism is not the same as like positive thinking, let's just put on a smile. Optimism is confronting the challenges that we have. It's being willing to acknowledge the pain that we might be feeling or others that might be feeling, the brutal difficulty of a situation, and knowing we're going to find options, knowing even if I can't see the option right now, 
I know that we can find some, we can make some. That's optimism. And so when we can enter into this situation of something like uh, Harrison Ford said, the biggest moral crisis facing humanity of climate change, and we can say, this is incredibly painful. There's so much despair and suffering around these issues. Mm. And we're going to find a way. That's optimism. And I think Christiana role modeled that for us very beautifully. Meg Levy, you know, Buddhism begins with that life is suffering. Mm. And so um, you think about climate change. Okay. Yeah, that, you know. <laughs> Um, and you also said, you know, you mentioned the, I am separate, but there's also this this um, illusion, perhaps, that I have control. So talk about the separation and control of the self. Separation and control. Uh, well, well, first of all, just to the the, the suffering piece, mm-hmm. and it's a difficult translation. Uh, the the word actually is, is dukkha, which is related to the idea of a, a wheel that isn't quite set right. So this sort of like. And the fact that if we are out of alignment with understanding how things actually function, which as I was talking a minute ago, Mm -hmm. that things are dynamically moving, connected, and we're trying to hold on or pretend they're not, then there's that that sense that there's things aren't right. Things are, we're never going to get them right. So it's stepping back from that in a way. Um, And in terms of control, it's, it's, we're not in control. We're not in control. And that, that's part of it. And we're not who we think we are. And no matter what we do, you know, we were talking earlier that, uh, and this is just personally for me very helpful, to realize that no matter what we do in about seven and a half billion years, they, this is all going to be gone anyway, right? It's all going to change. It's all, the sun will expand. The earth will be gone, just like ourselves. So, so Buddhism also asked us to look like, okay, my own personal death, if I really take that in, how does that actually free me you know, to actually be with the pain, but also the, the joy, the compassion, the connection? Is there a way that if we really see, we can't really hold on to this. It's impossible. And how do we take care of it? Then that frees the action, and it's interconnected how we all emerge in that. So there's this idea in, in climate that, that sort of we're attached to um, you know, the glaciers that Christiana mm-hmm. talked about, the coral reefs that are dying, and every generation kind of has a, a reset for what the natural landscape was. I mean, imagine if you were an Ohlone and you came to mm-hmm. the indigenous people that occupied San Francisco and you came to it now from what you had remembered it, would you be wowed with wonder? Would you be aghast at what has been done, paved over mm-hmm. to that beautiful landscape. Mm-hmm. You know, so I guess what I'm getting at is can detachment, if we can detach in a Zen way, does that mean we can lessen the pain of the loss that climate is bringing to us? So, Josh? I, I think you, you can speak better to the Buddhist part of this, uh, but why do we need to detach from the pain? Mm-hmm. Like we're so uh, actively in our society, we're so actively seeking comfort. Mm-hmm. And, you know, whether that's on our phones or whether that's shopping or whether that's, you know, what we drink or like, what if it's okay to be, to, to, to experience the despair. And at the very same time, you know, we look outside here mm-hmm. and can we hold those two things at once? Like, it's so beautiful. It's such a gift to be right. on this yeah. planet. And 
we have despair. And those two things, they don't cancel each other out. They're not, mm-hmm. it's not a paradox. It's, what's the word? Anyway, they don't, they don't erase each other. You know, right, I can right, be right. really mad at my wife and yeah, love yeah. her like crazy at the same moment. Dualism in a way. Yeah, right. Yeah. I just want to say I agree with you. You know, and, and I've also been um, moved hearing people talk about how do we, how do we actually turn towards that, towards, toward the, toward, toward, turn towards the pain. But in part of that, you can see how much you care. Yeah. You can feel the, the, the compassion, what's there. And then underneath it's the love. And so how do we actually start to practice through that? Well, and Christiana shared that with us. Like yeah. she fell to her knees in pain, yeah. which galvanized her to do something impossible. Right. And I mean, I think if instead of hiding from our emotions, we just said, hey, these are teachers to help us figure out what's really important for us and for the world. Josh, you've done some research or aware of some research about how um, people, Americans, are afraid and more lonely than ever. Mm -hmm. So I'm sorry to say it's global. Uh, We humanity is Mm -hmm. more afraid and more lonely than ever in recorded research. Now, probably there are other times in history when people have really been suffering, but nobody was taking polls. Um, (laughs) What is that doing to our relationships, our ability to connect, our ability to solve the problems that are in front of us, our ability to form a chord, right? And then Christiana talked about being able to look forward at our shared responsibility. And when we're in that state of loneliness and fear, those are actually really valuable feelings. They're really important mm-hmm. teachers. Mm-hmm. Yet if we stay only in that, it's like we only listen to this one loud voice. It's going to be really hard for us to do the work of connecting across difference about finding that shared compassion, about finding mm-hmm. the courage inside ourselves to actually listen to each other. So I think what it means is just as the seas are getting heavier, the seas are rising, literally, the emotional seas are rising, mm-hmm. and that means we have to work harder, right? And that's mm-hmm. what mindfulness practice is all about, mm-hmm. right? It's preparing ourselves to cope. And, and I think that disconnection from, from each other is not unrelated to our disconnection with the world and the, and the wider system as well. And one, one evolution I'm also seeing is mindfulness um, originally seen as a I mean, individual practice, you know, my own focus, et cetera, and realizing more and more, oh, no, it's, it's a mindful ecosystem, you know, even in, a, even in a secular way, and that this is not a new idea, that whole cultures have been built, built around this, but realizing, oh, we need to create cultures and corporate structures and communities that actually integrate these principles and not just moment-by-moment focus that really do include like the kind of intention that Christiana was talking about. Because how we approach these issues is just as important as what we do. And I think that goes to back, back to what you were saying about slowing, slowing down or at least how are we present and aware as we make decisions in a real way, in an active way. Josh Friedman, uh, there's a lot of debate these days about the attack on science in our country, facts, you know, we've got to be fact-based, certainly climate people, scientists talk a lot about facts. Um, they're important, but what is the shadow side of science and facts, and what do they do to our emotions? Well, you know, it's sort of funny, like, let's just be rational about this. <laughs> okay, well, if we're going to be rational, we're going to confront the reality that human beings are not just rational. <laughs> 
So I see myself as a scientist and I love data. And what I know about neuroscience is that uh, what happens, our brains are kind of use it or lose it tools. Mm -hmm. And as we develop certain aspects of our brain, uh, we suppress others. Mm. So whatever it is we're actively using, uh, there's a set of neural networks that govern our ability to connect with our own emotions and with each other. And those are different neural networks than govern our ability to analyze uh, a quantitative data set. And so, you know, I grew up learning a lot about analyzing that quantitative data set. And as a result, my capacity to do to activate this other neural network actually diminished. And so now I've spent the last 20 years trying to get both of those two things able to work. So I think for, um, for us to be really scientific about it is to be able to embrace why we're doing the science and to make sure that as scientists, as citizens, as human beings, we're integrating all of these different aspects of ourselves and developing ourselves in a more balanced way. I interviewed uh, Bill Nye recently, and he actually has a documentary of his life, and there's a part where they're looking at his brain to see if being famous changes someone's brain, uh, inflates certain parts, and actually there's part <laughs> that actually he mentions that, that they can now see with MRIs that therapy actually changes the structure, talk therapy changes the structure of brain, as does, does mindfulness, Meg Libby? Mindfulness, yes. So you know, uh, another development is understanding the difference between just... Um, a particular state in a given moment, though you're maybe doing some kind of practice. And if you're practicing regularly over time, especially longer practices, how that becomes actually more of a, a trait that versus like, okay, now I'm going to do my mindfulness. It's just if you actually practice that regularly, you naturally are more mindful. And an interesting um, bit of research, I, I highly recommend the book Altered Traits uh, by Richie Davidson and Daniel Goleman, which talks about some of these mo more recent findings. But for longer-term meditators, some of the, the rumination that we naturally do in our, our brains that's all about me and myself and da-da-da, that actually calms down some. And then also the tendency to want to attach to our idea, the idea of ourself, to other things, that also becomes more relaxed. And one of, the, one of the practices that affects it is loving kindness meditation. So we need to broaden our understanding of what practice is. So there's mindfulness, but it also includes things like developing compassion, which additionally um, activates a very pro-social part of the brain, versus simply empathy and feeling the pain with, if you're, con if you're actually cultivating the sense of wishing well for, hoping to relieve the suffering, you are shifting the way you're seeing yourself and the world. And so for me, these basic practices, how do we go to the gym in a sense and get in shape mm. so that when we're, we're in this dynamic situation and these dynamic challenges, that we're able to stay present and balanced and responsive in a sustainable way. And I think that Christiana talked about that as well, right? That extending our ability to be compassionate, mm -hmm. uh, it's, you know, even with the stranger, even with antagonist and finding that shared connectedness. But, you know, I think something we've talked about before, Greg, is about how we, in the face of something like climate, we can feel really powerless. Mm -hmm. And I think the message that I would want to leave people with is that your emotions are a source of power and that this ability to grow compassion is one of the most powerful things we can do as human beings. 
Mm-hmm. And it transforms us, it transforms our relationships, and ultimately it does transform the world. It's not an easy process, but our emotions are there for a reason to guide us mm-hmm. towards that kind of way of interacting. Josh, what do you think about there's a myth of urgency? So um, the best-selling business book in the 1990s, John Cotter, he talks about the need to create urgency and a burning platform and a, you know, the shrinking iceberg. And, um, and the notion that we change because of urgency. And yes, we do. Like, fear is actually very motivating. Mm-hmm. But what fear motivates us to do is to withdraw and protect and narrow our vision. And that, again, that's not bad. Like, that's useful mm-hmm. at times, but it has to also be balanced with some of the reasons why we feel the fear. Like, we only feel fear because we feel love. Mm-hmm. Right? We, if, if we don't care, if I don't care if I live or die, I don't, you know, I don't feel fear about, you know, crossing this ravine. Mm-hmm. Right? So urgency is easily slips into, like, let's create fear. And what happens when we create fear, we can see it in our country today. We can see it in so many countries today. When we create fear, we create divisiveness. We create this false disconnection from one another. We create this short-sighted thinking. And I, I, I think if we understand, you know, the sort of basic piece of emotional intelligence that emotions are there to guide and, and motivate us, we need to bring forward the, a bigger range of emotions that are going to serve us to achieve the goals that we have. Meg, your thought on that is, you know, yeah, fear. Uh, Well, actually, the way I was going to go with it, so yes, there's the the fear and the urgency of that, um, but also cultivating the range of emotions that includes the delight and the pleasure and how when, when we get out of our heads so much, and can actually be be present and allow the sensory experience of our world. What if that just became a natural part of everyone's day? That that was a a priority, you know, to do that, to cultivate that. And there's a, also a traditional meditation which I love, which talks about the different elements in a very simplistic way of of the body, but that they they are the same as the elements of the earth. And as Christiana was talking, different traditions, these are golden principles, of course, in the Bible, you have, you know, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. What if we really contemplate that? Or the water in my cup, you know, (laughs) that this is related to the rain that fell and the reservoirs and the creek, and it's going to go back in the ocean. It's the same stuff in my body, the same air that's coming through photosynthesis. My energy, our energy here, all is coming from the sun. So it's one thing to talk about this, but there are actually three levels. It's said three levels of wisdom in a way. There's listening. There's thinking about it. Does this really make sense to me? But then there's sitting with it. And it enters in a di- different level, a deeper level. So how do we cultivate, cultivate this way of being with ourselves and each other and the world that supports this kind of radical, intimate engagement? Mm-hmm. If you're just joining us, we're talking about mindfulness at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. My guests are Josh Friedman and Meg Levy. Let's go to our first question. Welcome. I want to return to the question about the Koch brothers. Um, <laughs> I'm sure many people are interested in that. I don't feel a victim from the Koch brothers, but I do feel like they're perpetrators. Mm. And I'd like to hear a little more. I appreciated what Christiana said about uh, not wanting to get into that place of dualism and victim and perpetrators. 
but they are clearly perpetrating um, a crime upon our children. When someone comes and tries to break into your house and kill your kid, you're not going to pause about, gee, am I in the right mindfulness moment? So can you help me with that? Because mm-hmm. I, I sense where she's going with it, and I don't quite get there. Yeah. I think I would just say, too, you know, on one hand, there's uh, you know, questions of, of ethics and of harm and uh, societally, how do we work with that? And that's all very real and necessary. And not just to say, oh, anything is fine, it's all love. But it also is all love in the sense that what I think what's being asked and I think what she was trying to, to also say is I think we're being asked not to other, mm-hmm. not to put that wall of separation you know, that they, whoever they are, there, you could go, you know, we're, we're talking about one particular per, uh, set of people here, but it, you could go on endlessly. And our tendency is to be like, oh, no, you know, da, da, da. And in fact, even when, uh, when we feel a sense of what's unfair, just in our brain, we actually st- start to shut down and don't feel the pain of that person as much. Mm-hmm. So knowing that we're wired to do that, but how do we s- get beyond that to include a sense of, of justice and uh, communal decision-making about how we work with this, but not do the othering, that it's much more vastly interconnected than that. And I, that's, that's kind of getting at the key, I think, of what all of this is about. Josh Friedman. I just also don't know. I mean, I've met a lot of people, and I met a lot of people that I disagree with a lot, but I actually haven't met anybody who I could say, yeah, they're evil. Everybody that I've met is doing the best they can with what they have, and what their perspective and what they have is different than what I have. So from that life experience, I guess my inclination is to consider that somebody is making the decisions that they're making that from their if, if from their perspective those are the best decisions and i don't always get there i really don't you know sometimes i just i want to stomp my foot and scream and be right but then when i step back and i say what what is the most powerful place for me to stand what i come back to is standing in that place of mm-hmm. they're doing the best they can with what they have I'm doing the best that I can with what I have. How can we bring those together? Mm-hmm. And we can't bring it together unless I'm willing to see them as equally good and me as equally good, which is really, really hard. Next question. Yes, welcome. Right here. Hi. <clears throat> Josh, you were talking about how fear and urgency tends to create people to cause them to close down and protect themselves. Mm-hmm. And yet, when we all got on the same page, which in our world these days is very difficult to do, we came together to, to deal with World War II, to deal with Hitler, and we, we all had a purpose that was common. And that was because we were afraid of Hitler. How can we, come, how can we use fear as a positive, uh, inclusive energy rather than thinking of it simply as something that should, we should close down and protect ourselves? That's a beautiful question. I mean, Mm. I think fear is a huge gift, right? I think so is anger, so is joy, so is delight, you know, so is jealousy. Mm. Like these, they're all, they're they're teachers. Um, So I think the first step is to become less afraid of our own feelings 
And for me, that's been a 20 plus year journey to like, <laughs> hey, it's okay. Mm. It's okay to feel. Um, as you know, the sort of Buddhist thing, suffering comes from denying what is. Mm. So I'm feeling something. All right, that's interesting. Mm. You're feeling something. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, fear is about something we care about is at risk. What is it that we care about? Hey, guess what? There's something we both care about. <coughs> we, may have, we may attribute the cause of that risk to different forces, but can we find where that shared commitment is? And maybe it's, you know, that, hey, we, all, we would all like our children to be able to breathe. You know, like maybe it's as simple as that. And so if we can, if we can find where that, where that common ground is instead of whose fault it is, and we can focus on what we share, what we, what we share that we're really afraid about, and maybe just being able to speak to our own fears and being able to admit, hey, I'm scared about this. That's a huge connecting force. Greg Dalton has been talking about the connection between mindfulness and climate action. He spoke with Christiana Figueres, former executive secretary of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. She now runs Mission 2020, a global initiative aimed at curbing greenhouse gases by the year 2020. Greg's other guests today were Joshua Friedman, CEO of Six Seconds, the Emotional Intelligence Network, and Meg Levy, an ordained Zen minister and emotional intelligence coach. This program was generously underwritten by the Susie Tompkins Buell Foundation. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. If you like the program, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Climate One is a project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner and Justin Norton. Annie Chelsea, Devin Strolovich, and Claire Schoen edit the show. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is produced in association with KQED Public Radio.